welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with distinguished injury researchers and practitioners about topics of their interest. Today we have an exciting conversation with three doctoral candidates who presented their work at the recent conference for the Society of Advancement of Violence and Injury Research in the United States. Stephen Oliphant is from Michigan State University. Kelsey Kondrick is from the University of Washington. And Woody Ozi is from the Department of Health, Behavior and Society at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. We hear about research that examines the impact of the repeal of Wisconsin's handgun purchase waiting period on suicide rates. We learn about research that explored the best way to quantify structural racism in epidemiological models. We explore the intersectionality framework and how it can be used to examine root causes such as racism, housing, public investment. And we see how this intersectionality framework can support the development of structural solutions to the problems of violence. Hello, everybody. Hello. It's uh, great to have this chance to chat to you all. And I might start off with introductions and uh, with you perhaps first, Kelsey. Yeah, so uh, my name is Kelsey Conrick. I'm originally from Alabama, what we call the Deep South here in the US. Um, And I moved here where I am in Seattle in 2015 to pursue a Master of Public Health. Um, So I became interested in injury research uh, during an epidemiology class taught by who is now one of my core mentors, Dr. Ali Rahani Rabar, who does some really fantastic work on violence prevention, firearm injury. Um, and that kind of spurred me to apply for an injury internship program where I met another one of my mentors, Dr. Moore. Um, and so I've been with both of them for about six years and I'm now a third year PhD candidate at the University of Washington School of Social Work. Um, Most of my research is around uh, social workers' role in firearm injury prevention, and um, I think that firearm research has always really interested me because of how different the cultures are around um, firearms and firearm safety, where I come from in Alabama, where my family still is, um, and here in Seattle. Um, And then for SAVER, I just finished up a term on the board of directors as the liaison between the um, Student Early Career Professionals Committee and the board of directors. That was a really fantastic learning experience. Thank you, Kelsey. And we'll come back to some of the leads you've given me there in a few minutes. Uh, Moody, I guess you're in a different part of the country. Um, Yes, I am. Hello, my name is Moody Uzi. I am a fourth year PhD candidate at the John Hopkins School of Public Health in the Department of Health, Behavior and Society. I actually am next door state from Kelsey. I'm in Georgia, from Georgia originally. Um, and then I lived, lots, bounced around a lot after college um, for different places. And um, now I'm in Baltimore in John Hopkins. Um, I've been here for about six years. I worked here for a couple of years before I entered the PhD program. Um, and I think the way that I entered the injury prevention field was through, I mean, I think a lot of, t- a lot of the stuff that's happened over the last like six, seven years um, or longer around sort of like Black Lives Matter and um, issues around sort of police shootings and just also generally violence for people of color. That really, really interests me. 
Um, I was in a different field before and I kind of shifted when I got into my PhD program into injury, injury prevention. And so it's just been a really great learning experiences and, and SAFER has been really amazing and kind of helping form that. I've also was on a training grant for a couple of years at John Hopkins. That's really been helpful um, through the School of Nursing. I've been connected within John Hopkins to the Center of Gun Bond Solutions and the Injury Prevention Center at John Hopkins. And so um, those have always been spaces that have been really useful and helpful. And then also I'm part of a, a leadership program called the Health Policy Leadership Scholars Program. And so that's been super helpful and, and inspiring and helpful in trying to think about how to shift sort of my research into sort of like public policy. Thank you, Mehdi. And uh, like Kelsey, you've given me uh, enough material there for us to explore a whole lot of good ideas for quite some time. But I'll, I'll move on now to hear from Stephen. Uh, my name is Stephen Oliphant, and I'm a doctoral candidate in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, so uh, a ways away from Kelsey and, and Mudia. Um, I worked as an accountant for a couple of years, and then I attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, um, where I uh, was a research assistant with the FACS, uh, Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium, uh, and that gave me some experience with uh, uh, firearms violence research. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in studying the impact that public policy has on suicide and interpersonal violence, including intimate partner violence. Uh, in addition to firearm policy and violence and injury prevention, I'm also interested in uh, analyzing how uh, death penalty policy changes, such as moratoriums and abolition, impact homicide. Thank you, Stephen. And while we're with you, I might um, ask you to explain a little bit about uh, the awards in the conference. I, we've come together because you're all award winners, but award winners in slightly different ways uh, had quite slightly different functions. So starting with you, Stephen, could you explain the award that you were involved with and what it was that you delivered for that award? Uh, Mudia and I were uh, the co-winners of the Brooks Webb Student Paper Award. Uh, so we submitted before the conference uh, uh, a paper version of our presentation, uh, which was then reviewed by um, researchers at SAVER uh, and, and scored accordingly. And then we were uh, determined to, to be the winners of that. And uh, I, don't, I won't speak for Mudia, but I received some great feedback from the reviewers that really helped me to uh, improve my paper to then uh, submit it to, um, to a journal in the next uh, few weeks. Thanks, Stephen. Mudia, how did you find that experience? Um, yeah, I found the experience of, of submitting my journal article to the um, Brooks Web competition really amazing. It's a really great experience to kind of craft the paper and figure out like what, how to communicate my research interest in sort of a brief um, space. Um, and yeah, yeah, the, the feedback that I've gotten from the Saver reviewers were really um, was really helpful, and I'm so excited to be submitting it to injury prevention soon, so. Thank you. And uh, Kelsey, was yours a different award? 
It was, though I did uh, win the Brooks Paper Award last year, and I also echo how helpful the um, reviewers' comments were last year as well. So this year I won the um, Best Student Science Award, so the process was a little bit different. Um, they took all of the, my understanding is they took all the abstracts that were submitted by students for oral presentations, and then the top five that were scored from that were invited to give, um, be considered for this award. So there was a special session um, I'm actually eight and a half months pregnant, so I wasn't able to attend because of COVID concerns, um, but was able to still submit a recording um, for that uh, session. And so it was judged by uh, several judges there um, among the top five abstracts. Thank you. Well, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit about the, the science behind each of your pieces of work there. But uh, Kelsey, you've given me a bit of a, a lead into a a question about the conference itself. You were an online attendee by the sound of what you've just said. Could you give me just a, a snapshot of the highlights of the conference for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was um, sad that I wasn't able to attend in person, but so incredibly grateful at how hard the um, SAVER board and the conference organizers work to make the hybrid conference, the online experience still um, really fantastic. They worked really hard to make sure we still had networking opportunities. I think the world of injury prevention researchers is really quite small compared to many other disciplines. And so networking as a student is really critical. Um, and so I did not want to have to lose out on this opportunity, especially with the downsized conferences in past years. Um, so I uh, was able to attend kind of the online or the uh, opening and closing sessions virtually, and then still was able to, you know, view all of the talks and have other people view my talks. So I was able to kind of network with folks mostly over email afterwards, get some great feedback on my work and kind of ask questions of other folks. Um, I think my favorite part of the conference was actually the student plenary speaker, Julie Ward, gave a really fantastic talk on um, mentorship. Um, and I think that one thing that really distinguishes SAVER from other conferences that I've been to as a student is really how much they focus on students and really creating those opportunities to network and share your work. Um, and so I think that was the idea behind having the plenary speaker, you know, hearing from those researchers of tomorrow. And I think she did a really fantastic job. Thank you. And Mudia, you were on site, so you, you would have had uh, different opportunities. How, what were your highlights? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the, the whole conference was just really amazing. It's it's funny because it, it seems like full circle. Um, my first year, I went to the Saber conference in Cincinnati, and then for the past two years, it's been online because of of COVID. And so this was my first year to come again to the Saber conference in person. So um, and it's, and it's like wrapping up things, my PhD program. So it's kind of full circle, and um, it was great meeting and meeting researchers um, throughout the field, um, both sort of new budding researchers like Kelsey and Stephen and myself, as well as sort of people who have been in the field for a long time. Um, I really enjoyed a couple of the specific events they had for students. So I was also on the student spotlight session with um, Kelsey. Um, and then also was a speed mentoring event that the um, student committee organized. And it was really amazing. I got a lot of um, business cards and emails from people to kind of get advice and um, about sort of like my research and also just the next steps as I look for, forward to like um, postdocs and other post-PhD opportunities. And so it was my first conference since COVID started. So um, it was a little bit weird in the beginning um, and seeing people with masks on um, was, it was useful, but also just kind of different, but um, I enjoyed it a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, and overall, it sounds like it was good to be back. Stephen, uh, what were your highlights? I'll, I'll probably... Um I'll sound a bit like uh, Moody and Kelsey with what I'll say, but uh, two main highlights come to mind. Uh, first, just attending the different sessions and learning about the research that people from around the world are doing was something that I uh, really enjoyed. It was actually difficult at times deciding between a few sessions that were going on at the same time. So I, I'm glad there was the option to watch recorded presentations uh, so I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. Uh, and then another related highlight was getting the chance to meet people and have individual conversations about our research and interests. Uh, Moody and I met at one of the social events and he told me about uh, the work that he's doing on uh, redlining and firearm violence. And it was nice to be able to ask him a few questions about an idea that I had for a future project and, and just learn about what he's doing. Um, so I, I really appreciated uh, having that opportunity to meet other students and researchers at the conference and, and talk about the research that we're all working on. Yeah, sometimes you go to conferences with the focus perhaps of talking to experienced researchers, but over time find that it's your own cohort that you grow with over the 20, 30 years, that the ones that you really uh, draw you back again and again uh, to these conference sessions. Um, it's time now, I think, to, to get into the, the deep aspects, deeper aspects of the research that you were actually talking about at the conference and, and the papers you presented and, and were clearly recognised by your peers to be excellent pieces of work. So who'd like to start? Shall we perhaps go back to Kelsey? And uh, if you could talk for a few minutes about uh, the science behind what you were presenting and what was awarded. Yeah, so... Uh, by project, we were looking at um, kind of different ways to conceptualize measuring structural racism. Um, and I think this project was the fortunate, happy outcome after something else, another project fell through. and was actually so much better than that original project I think would have ever been. Um, most of my background is in qualitative research. So I approached one of my mentors, Dr. Rahani Rabar, asking if he had any projects that I could help with that would help me gain some quantitative skills as I was kind of transitioning to a new phase in my PhD. Um, and he had a great idea looking at doing some policy research. Um, but as we started trying to pursue that project, we realized we just didn't have the data that we needed. But we also realized that what was really exciting us and what was really sparking conversation with colleagues when we were talking about this was actually the idea of how we were going to address structural racism in those initial models that we were thinking about doing. So we decided to just kind of run with that um, as we were kind of approaching the time period, the ending time period of when we needed to wrap the project up. Um, and we wanted to really just build kind of a skeleton that researchers, other researchers could use, um, fill in the blanks uh, for their specific to their own research projects of how they could potentially measure structural racism in models. So when we were going to the literature, um, we were seeing that people who were doing similar work um, were creating, they were conceptualizing structural racism using these disparity metrics. So they'd create these disparity ratios. So instead of looking at absolute poverty levels, they would look at black divided by white disparities in poverty. Um, but what we were also noticing is they were still controlling for the percent of the population who are black, which is a measure of race instead of measure of racism. So conceptually, that's not making sense um, why we would still be kind of adjusting for both things. Um, so we wanted to see, let's test this idea empirically and see, is that really actually making sense the way to do it? Or should we be doing it in this more kind of conceptually, theoretically appropriate way? 
Um, so we looked at, we decided our outcome would be firearm homicide victimization. Um, and we went back and looked at other researchers who were using that as their outcome um, and what kind of constructs they were using to measure structural disadvantage or structural racism. So they we picked um, poverty, education, labor force participation, um, percent of single parent households, percent living in rental housing, and arrests for index crimes. Um, and so we modeled each of those separately looking at just the kind of absolute level of things of, of each measure, so absolute level level of poverty, um, one looking at that measure plus percent black, one looking at the absolute level plus the um, uh, disparity ratio of structural racism that we were calculating, um, and then one model including all three. Um, and I think what we found was really exciting in terms of how consistent the results were. Um, we looked at a bunch of different measures of model fit. We were looking at point estimates and statistical significance. And across all six independent variables, um, the only time uh, percent black was not ever statistically significant, the point estimates were hovering around zero. The disparity metric was always statistically significant and were, was always you know, quite far away from zero. Um, and consistently the model that was including um, the disparity ratio and not including percent black was performing the best across all of the different um, measures of model fit. So I think that what that was kind of telling us is that with this outcome, these exposures, that adding the percent of the population who are black into the model just isn't really added, adding beyond these measures of structural racism. So conceptually, this wasn't surprising. You know, scholars, especially scholars of color, have been telling us for decades to stop using race when we're really trying to measure racism. Um, but it was really exciting to be able to kind of contribute to that um, body of literature using this kind of empirical example of firearm homicide. Thanks, Kelsey. It's a, it's a nice depth of methodology there, but it's came to a neat can, summary outcome, um, which is satisfying in research when it does do that, doesn't it? Um, the Absolutely. next step is, question is, what do you do from here? But I'm not going to ask you that question because uh, it may come up in some of the other answers, uh, but it also may be too big to uh, to address. But uh, clearly, if you're going to dive into that answer if I gave you half a chance. <laughs> Across to you then, Muria, how would you like to uh, talk about your work? Yes, thank you. Um, so um, what I did for my research, I'm, I'll basically used a intersectional a framework called intersectionality to look at sort of the relationship between two forms of racism, um, which are redlining and racialized economic segregation, which is a combined racial and economic segregation in relation to non-fatal shootings in Baltimore City. And so I guess the way that I came about this research was that um, I've been really interested and influenced by a lot of the new research coming along around redlining. And so I was trying to see how I could um, have a unique spin and interesting spin to the research that's been going on so far. And so um, I learned about a, a intersectional framework of looking at um, two forms of oppression intersectionally um, through a class I took a couple of years ago. And I decided to kind of use that framework to um, look at sort of how um, these two forms of, of, of oppression, um, redlining and racialized economic segregation, can intersect with one another to produce violence disparities, if so. Um, and so I, I know not everyone might be aware of what redlining is. And so just a really brief background. In the 1930s, um, the United States had um, basically an organization called HOLC, um, Homeowners Loan Corporation, and they graded 
neighborhoods in cities um, based on four different grades. And those grades um, had long lasting impacts in the sense that um, the grades um, classified neighborhoods based on what they view were the worthiness of investment in those neighborhoods. And so we, we found um, so we found that basically with regards to neighborhoods that were redlined, which are neighborhoods that were deemed hazardous for investment, if when that happened and combined with um, modern day segregation and racialized segregation, um, that there was a, a lot of high disparities of violent crimes, particularly non-fatal shootings um, with, um, within those neighborhoods. And so we took like a very much spatial approach and a very much uh, sort of like structural approach to look at sort of non-fatal shootings. I think a lot of times in the past, people have looked at individual behavior um, and focused on individual behavior or criminal justice, justice system. And um, like Kelsey, we're trying to kind of shift the sort of um, viewpoints and the sort of perspective to look at more root causes, um, like racism, like housing, like uh, economic investment, um, and think about sort of public health solutions to violent crime. Another another topic that that, that is a huge one, isn't it? But can you um, come to a sort of a next steps summary, perhaps? Uh, where would you like to take it from here? Well, thank you. Um, so um, for now, the, the the paper that I'm submitting is um, basically descriptive statistics. And so the next step is to um, model it. So I'm doing that right now uh, and, and to see like, the different associations with regards to um, these different formats of um, racism. Just to think about the future, um, this sort of intersectionality framework is like action-oriented framework. And so the idea is that you should be using this f- to make change. And so um, I personally used for this particular study race, um, racism in the form of redlining and racialized economic segregation, but other researchers can use different forms of um, oppression. I mean, I think that thinking about sort of different forms of oppression and seeing how those intersect with one another to maybe produce um, health inequities or um, violence, and particularly violence inequities is kind of the next steps. And then thinking about as well sort of policy solutions to address the sort of root causes of violence um, that's revealed from these studies. So, Yeah, and it also reminds us the value of conferences, isn't it? Because I could imagine that there will be people who aren't in intentional injury or, or violence research who would look at some of your structural interventions uh, and causes for inequity uh, that result in unintentional injury as well um, and could perhaps be addressed by these uh, large-scale interventions rather than the behavioural change interventions, which we might be more intuitively inclined to do. Um, Stephen, then, um, back to you. Again, some overlaps with some of your content area of interest with the previous two speakers, but a slightly different way of doing the work. Is that right? Yeah, my so my uh, paper examined the impact of Wisconsin's handgun purchase waiting period repeal on suicide rates. Um, most, if not all, U.S. states have had a firearm purchase waiting period requirement at some point in the last 50 years, whether as part of uh, a 1994 federal law or state-specific laws. Uh, but today, only nine states mandate purchase waiting periods. Um, Prior to 2015, if you bought a handgun from a federally licensed dealer in Wisconsin, you'd have to first clear background check and then wait 48 hours before you could get possession of the handgun, uh, and that's no longer the case. Uh, Given the time 
that the time between suicidal ideation and attempt can be short, it's possible that delaying firearm transfers can prevent impulsive suicides by um, limiting the impact of prospective buyers experiencing transient suicidal ideation. Uh, the limited research that exists has found that waiting periods are associated with modest reductions in firearm suicides and homicides. Um, one of the similarities between waiting periods and some of the work that Kelsey and, and Moody have talked about uh, in Wisconsin, a, a study found that there was a correlation between um, the waiting period and then increased suicide rates among people of color and uh, residents in urban counties. Um, so I, I wanted to examine whether the repeal of Wisconsin's handgun waiting period had a measurable impact on overall handgun and, and firearm suicides. So one of the challenges in comparative policy analysis is finding a suitable control to represent what would have happened had a policy not changed. And an innovative uh, solution to this is uh, synthetic control estimation, which involves using a weighted combination of control states to construct a composite that best uh, resembles the treated state on pre-intervention outcome trends and other important characteristics. So I used a pool of donor states that didn't repeal their purchase delay requirements between 1999 and 2019 to construct uh, a synthetic control for handgun suicides in Wisconsin and one for firearm suicides. Wisconsin's handgun suicide synthetic control was made up of Minnesota, Illinois, and Iowa, all of which border Wisconsin. Uh, Iowa didn't have a waiting period during the study period that I'm looking at, but its permitting requirements for first-time handgun purchasers mandated a transfer delay that was similar to a waiting period. Uh, so following the repeal, Wisconsin had a much larger increase in handgun suicides than its synthetic control, which translated to an estimated uh, 67 additional handgun suicide deaths per year. And this increase was robust to uh, sensitivity tests with a backdated intervention date and donor pool modifications where Iowa and other states were excluded. As a secondary analysis, a difference in differences regression indicated a similar but slightly smaller uh, treatment effect. There was also a significant increase in the proportion of overall suicides that involved handguns following the repeal, um, although there are differences in how uh, consistently states classify handgun and long guns firearm suicides, this increase appeared to be unique to Wisconsin. So the other outcome I'll, I'll mention briefly I, that I examined was overall firearm suicide. Uh, prior research has found that waiting periods are associated with a 7 to 11% reduction in firearm suicides. And my findings suggest an increase of similar magnitude associated with repealing a waiting period. So relative to the synthetic counterfactual, there's an eight and a half percent increase in firearm suicide rates following the repeal, which again was robust to these different sensitivity tests. So in terms of implications, uh, the findings suggest that means restriction policies, even if they're just temporary delays, may prevent suicide by limiting capacity. A uh, main challenge of suicide prevention is identifying high-risk individuals during acute crises and universal approaches like waiting periods that don't rely on an identification mechanism can complement other prevention strategies. So uh, the one sentence summary I'll conclude with here is that uh, repealing the waiting period 
requirement in Wisconsin and allowing more immediate handgun possession resulted in estimated increases in both handgun suicide and overall firearm suicide that uh, appear to have been preventable. Wow. It's uh, another really nice piece of work. Congratulations to to you, Stephen, but to all three of you. I think that uh, I just was in, in awe of the quantity and the breadth of what you've covered um, and been able to articulate in a short space of time. So you're clearly able to communicate science as well as do science. Um, and uh, by the sound of things, we'll be coming back and back to these conferences again and again. So I'll have lots more opportunities to see how your work progresses, as will all of the uh, those of us listening to this podcast today. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your commitment to injury prevention. And I look forward to chatting to you at some stage in the future. Today we've been chatting with Stephen Oliphant from Michigan State University, Kelsey Kondrick from the University of Washington, and Mudia Uzi from Johns Hopkins University about papers they recently presented at the Sabre Conference and for which they received awards. For those of you wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed today, I would invite you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can download Injury Prevention podcasts from your favorite platform or app on the first Thursday of each month.